0: Mama's hands held on to mine to guide me day and night, and it took the sting of mama's hands to teach me wrong from right when times were bad and money. Somehow she would make the food hold out another day.
1: This is Our American Stories. You're listening to the great George Jones paying homage to his mom here in our special celebration from others all across the country. And we're going to give you a mashup this hour that I think you'll be delighted by. We hope so. Let's start with Denzel Washington. And here's a clip from his commencement address at Dillard University in Louisiana. And here's Denzel speaking to that graduating class about the reality check he often needed from his own mom.
2: You graduated. You did it. You made it. Congratulations to you. And you did it all by yourselves. Nobody helped you. (laughs) No, that's not just what you know. That's what I thought when I was uh, when I was young. I uh, starting to really make it as an actor. I came in, I talked to my mother, I said, Ma, did you think that this was going to happen? I'd be so big and I'll be able to take care of everybody and I can do this and I can do that and I can. She said, boy, stop it right there, stop it right there, stop it right there. He said, if you only knew how many people that had been praying for you, how many prayer groups she put together, how many prayer cloths she gave me, how many times she splashed me with holy water. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to saved my sorry behind her, she said it. She said, oh, you did it by yourself? i tell you what you can do by yourself. You can go outside, get a mop and a bucket and wash them windows. You can do that by yourself. Superstar.
1: Superstar. Next up, Sandra Bullock. Upon winning uh, win Best Actress in a Leading Role for a Performance in the Blind Side, a film about a Christian family adopting a black teenager named Michael Orr who would become an NFL superstar. It was a performance that later inspired Bullock to become a mother herself when she never thought she ever would be, and she adopted a young black boy herself. But here she is about talking about, in this particular clip, her own mom.
3: I would like to thank what this film was about for me, which are the moms that take care of the babies and the children no matter where they come from. those moms and parents never get thanked. Uh, I, in particular, uh, fail to thank one. So, if I can take this moment to thank Helga B. Um, for not letting me ride in cards with boys till I was 18, because she was right, I would have done what she said I was going to do. <laughs> for t- making me practice every day when I got home, piano, ballet, whatever it is I wanted to be. She said to be an artist, you had to practice every day. And for reminding her daughters that there's no race, no religion, no class system, no color, nothing, no sexual orientation that makes us better than anyone else, we are all deserving of love. So to that trailblazer who allowed me to have that and this... And this, I thank you so much for this opportunity that I share with these extraordinary women and my lover, Meryl Streep. Thank you.
1: And this one from a teacher named Obino Coley, who teaches a high school entrepreneurship class that's sponsored by the Network for Teaching Entrepreneurship, and we love touting their work. Alex Cortez, one of our producers, interviewed Obino, and here's what he said. About his mother.
4: My mom's a little bit different, man. I'm I, I, gonna tell, tell you a funny story about my mom. one day, I had to be in middle school. I had to be in middle school, and uh, it was a Sunday because I had to sun. I have remember having my Sunday clothes on. We went to a Target, and I had a clipper set at home, but I didn't have any guards that you put on the clippers. Uh, yeah. Okay, so I remember I had a like it's back in the days we had we had pullovers, pullovers were like the big old things, and I had so I had a Cleveland Browns pullover. <laughs> and I remember was at a Target and I opened up the, uh, the package and I put the clipper guards in my pullover. And we walked out the store and security arrested me for stealing. And I, I, my, mom, my mom was so mad at me for stealing. And I was surprised and I thought she was gonna whoop me. And she didn't whoop me man. You know what she did?
5: sent you to prison no time. she
4: didn't send me to prison man <laughs> what'd you
5: do
4: she didn't talk to me man she didn't talk to me for like two weeks. two weeks two weeks two weeks but listen she didn't talk to me and to 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 not have my mother speak to me be so utterly disgusted with me that was a feeling I would, I would rather take a whooping to disappoint your mother like that uh, and I've never, and that was the last time I've ever stolen anything in my <laughs> life. So here's, the, so here's the funny story about it. So I was interviewing for a job at Errants. I interviewed a job, and, I, you know, I actually walked off with a pencil. So I'm driving down the street, and I have the pen in my hand. I'm like, An oh, accident. I just, I'm like, accident. Yeah. So I turn around. It's like I'm driving, like, way down the street. So I turn around, and the guy that I interviewed with, I said, oh, my bad. I took your pen on accident, and I gave it back to him. And I walked out. And I got the job, and like a month later, like a like maybe like six months into the job, but he asked me, "Do I know why I got the job?" I'm like, "Nah, I know why I got the job." He said, "Because I knew you wouldn't steal from me, because he took that pen and brought it back to me." That's awesome. And that's all because my mom didn't talk to me when I stole something. You know, and I, and that's a, that's a funny thing about life, man. Yeah. And you just never know what lessons you learn, you know, that that helps you get certain places in life. And I needed that job, too, man, at that time. So, you know.
1: Yeah, and you needed the silent treatment, too. And we've got Kathy Hamilton up next. Here in America, you'll find all sorts of moms. Moms who also have full-time jobs, part-time jobs, stay-at-home moms, too. Grandmothers who serve as moms. And there's a disturbing trend of folks denigrating stay-at-home moms, treating them as if they're not living up to their full feminist potential. One time we interviewed a mom named Kathy Hamilton who fought and defeated the corrupt machine at her local community college, a real heroine in the state of Illinois. And one of Kathy's fellow trustees, who was also a woman, once said to her, aren't you just a stay-at-home mom? Here was her reaction.
6: I was shocked. Because, you know what? You're never just a stay-at-home mom. Being a mom is the most important job there is. For a woman, I believe. Because you are changing the world every time you work with your child and you support your child. I'm very proud to have been a stay at home mom.
1: Amen, Kathy. And we social justice warriors, the kind we believe in, are the kind that raise their own kids, employ people. That's how you change the world. More celebrations of mothers on this special Mother's Day weekend. Our American Stories, and we continue our Mother's Day celebration. And when we talk about mothers, we always remember that many women have trouble becoming moms. Here's Carol Bittinger, who lost two children to miscarriage, and who we featured during Infant Loss Month, which Ronald Reagan commemorated in 1986. Listen in here now for what she says about motherhood.
6: I don't know if I will ever have children on Earth. The idea of being pregnant has become a scary, heartbreaking one, and honestly, it terrifies me. The thought of the joy, followed by the pain. Physical, emotional, mental. I'm not sure I'm strong enough to handle that again. Part of me wants to be, and part of me wants to just let the dream go, and be strong enough in myself to go through life on my own. I have my students, and they are my children. Maybe that's enough. Will I ever know for sure? One thing I am sure of is that I am a mother. I know this in my heart. I think about my babies every day, even if I cannot take care of them in the way I wish. I wear, I wear rings for their due dates to think of them daily and remind me of the greatest love anyone can know, the love of one's children. I am a mother, an angel mother, and I hope that as I continue on this journey of life, I can make my babies proud as they wait for the day I get to hold them in heaven and finally tell them in person how much I love them and wish I could have held them every day on Earth. I am a mother, and no one can take that away from me.
1: Thanks for that, Carol. And now on to a war letter. We love to do them too, and we'll do that periodically and spend whole days on great war letters. In 1968, during the Vietnam War, Teresa O. Davis from Quinty, Massachusetts, learned that her son Richard had been killed. Mrs. Davis had lost her husband, also a serviceman, ten years earlier, and the death of her eldest son was overwhelming. Teresa's heartache never subsided, but after going to the Vietnam Veterans Memorial to find his name, Davis wrote a letter to Richard expressing how much she loved him and how deeply he was missed. And here's that letter.
7: Dear Dick, you were my firstborn. With your laughing eyes and mischievous smile, you stole my heart. I remember you as a little boy, the forts you built, the adventures you took, the rescued critters you brought home, and the friends that surrounded you. I'll never forget when you were 12 years old and you stood so proudly beside me as they played the taps for your dad and gave us his flag. My darling son, you were the brave one. You tried so hard to be a father to your younger brothers and sisters. You grew up so fast. As soon as you were out of high school, you signed up for the special forces. And you were so happy when they accepted you. How proud you looked when you came home on leave wearing your green beret. Captured in my mind forever is the image of your final hug as you raced for the plane that would take you to Vietnam. You didn't say too much in your letters but I knew, a mother always knows, that you were in danger because you always used to tell me, what you don't know won't hurt you. I found out later, on June 6th, 1968, that you were on a team with some South Vietnamese soldiers and your group was pinned down under fire. You were hit several times before you died. You were only 19 years old. There are no words to describe how I felt. I was so empty. But I had to put up a front for your brothers and sisters. Little Kevin was only seven. He kept saying, It's not fair. He'd already given up his daddy. I pretended to be brave. But inside, the empty space just grew larger. It's been a long time, my son. I still miss you. I will always miss you. Sometimes I look at your friends that you went to school with, and I wonder what you would have been like, what my grandchildren would have been like. But you will never come back. You're gone forever. They gave you a silver star. Now they call me a gold star mother. I spend a lot of time with the other gold star mothers. Every Monday night, a group of us goes to the homeless shelter for Vietnam vets. I know, if it was you in that position, I would want someone to do the same for you. I guess that's what moms do. A lot of the guys have family problems. When they came home from Vietnam... They just couldn't talk about it. And they alienated themselves from their parents. We try to give them support. Talk to them like a mother would talk to a son. One of them even came over and asked me if I could sew a button on for him. I did, but I also asked him, have you called your mom? Son, have you called your dad? They think their family doesn't want to hear from them. But when they do call and go visit, the healing can begin. We also go to the Vietnam Memorial whenever we can. We can tell when one of the vets is having a hard time. Even now, so many of them feel guilty because they came home and our sons didn't. We give them a hug and tell them not their fault we're glad they're home Dick I'm sure wherever you are up there you approve of what I'm doing you are such a people person always trying to help someone besides when I go to the wall it's almost like you're there with me each time I run my fingers over your name on that cold granite wall. I can feel the warmth of your laughter as if you're saying, it's okay, Mom. I'm here. I know I will never hold you in my arms again, but I will forever hold you close to my heart because you will always be my firstborn, my shining star. Love, Mom.
1: And the gold star mothers that Teresa refers to date back to World War I, when the mothers and wives of men killed in battle began wearing a black band with a gold star memory of their loved ones. And we'll close out the segment with a church in North Carolina, which conducted an experiment to compare what kids and moms have to say when asked to describe their parenting. It's easy for moms to focus on their shortcomings. Here are the moms' answers, when asked to describe themselves as a mother.
6: I'm a perfectionist, and so that's hard with kids. Uh, there's definitely days when I have my doubts about my abilities. struggle with my temper. I struggle with, like, how I react with situations. I wish I knew how to, I guess, just
7: calm myself before speaking to them. I wish I was better at... Taking time to sit down and just listen more to my child.
6: I wish I was more confident in being a mom. I'm
7: not the most patient person in the world. Patience. Patience is far and away probably the biggest struggle. I just want them to know just how much I love them.
1: And then those moms, you can hear the self-doubt there and the self-criticism. Those moms got to hear what their kids had to say about them.
8: My mom is totally awesome. She's fun to snuggle with. Pretty, funny. She does cook a lot of food for me. She's just unique. That's why I love her so much. We go on dates together, like we go shopping. She loves
9: me a lot.
8: I have a lot of favorite things about my mom. We like to watch movies together and color and stuff. We go to church together, we volunteer together. She is like my heart, I guess you could say, because she's that
9: close to me.
8: My favorite thing is to jump on a trampoline with my mom. That's my most favorite thing, to go up high. We, like, get ice cream or something and, like, you go to the nail salon and have fun. <laughs> my mommy's my hero. She's pretty and beautiful. She is my hero. She just will care about me and just always love me forever.
1: And when we come back more, we're going to hear from Steve Harvey, Kevin Durant, and Merle Haggard. And we're also going to hear a very special piece that Faith did. She visits the villages down near Orlando. And boy, we've got a treat for you coming up as well, a rap piece from Faith. This is our American story celebrating Mother's Day. Well, do it all weekend long if you can. More after these messages. American stories, and we continue with our Mother's Day celebration and taking the time to appreciate those important people in our lives and the most important people in our lives. No disrespect to you, Dads, to our mothers. Faith has been sharing stories from her trips to the villages in Florida, and this time around she spoke with Rita, who did nothing but talk about her mother. Rita is from a small city in New York and was born into a large Italian family, and at 75 years old, You can hear in her voice how much her mom meant to her. Take it away, Faith.
7: Rita starts off telling a story about how her mother Grace loved to dance.
10: She could work circles around me. I mean, I was—we're 20 years apart. Well, when my daughter got married, my mother made all the make cookies for Italian weddings. She made all kinds of cookies, but she loved to dance. I loved to dance. We danced at my daughter's wedding every dance. She danced as much as I danced. The next morning, everybody was coming over to our house. So they all came over for coffee and breakfast. My sister came over, and I couldn't walk down the stairs because my fever broke up. <laughs> I walked down the stairs. I'm trying to get everybody breakfast or whatever. So my sister comes over. I said, you think it's too early to call Mom? She says, no, give her a call. So I called up. She answers the phone. I said, Mom, I didn't, get you. I said, I didn't wake you, did? She says, wake me? Are you kidding me? She said, I was out t- picking grapes. I just came in to get my boots because it's wet out there. (laughs) She was out picking grapes. I I was like crippled. (laughs) And she danced every dance that I did. She could work circles around That's a different generation. I'm telling you. Here she talks
7: about what her mother did on Holy Thursday for their St. Joseph's Day table. The St. Joseph's table is a ritual meal done by Sicilians and Sicilian Americans. She was truly a mother to everyone.
10: She had orphans. There was a, an orphanage. There was a, um, two orphanages in our hometown. One was for boys, one was for girls. And she had them over and the brother and sister got to have dinner together at her. We had this beautiful St. Joseph's table and we had, it was full of just like, people that were there were orphans, little so boys and girls. It was beautiful. She always did something for somebody else. And I mean, I'm not saying she was an angel. She was a perfect person, but pretty close. Of course, I'm
7: There were times that Rita felt that her mother had been touched by heaven
10: itself. She went to Italy. My sister's husband sent his mother and my mother, which was his mother-in-law, to Italy on a pilgrimage. I mean, she never had money to go anywhere, but she had. She bought, when she was in Italy, a statue of the Blessed Mother that we couldn't, my sister and I, I mean, we couldn't move it. It's like marble. She carried that. We have a picture of her carrying this, and we we, we don't know how she did things. I mean, it was like, I'm not kidding you. She had a special something. (laughs) She was touched.
7: Rita goes on to share how her mother passed away and the mark that she left behind on all those she came into contact with. And how did she pass?
10: She had lung cancer, and not from smoking either. But she had it for like 14 years. Something about mold, or I don't know. Actually, she was carrying my my niece. She had a little baby, two-year-old, and my mother was carrying and she fell, and she was going to fall, and she kind of leaned over so she wouldn't drop the baby. And she thought she hurt her rib. So when she went to the hospital, when she went to the doctors, because she thought she hurt her rib, a couple of days after, that's when they found she had lung cancer. So it was like a miracle that they found it that early, and they removed her lung. And uh, 14 years later, she kind of lived with for 14 years. She went through chemo, she went to Roswell. We took her, my sister and I used to take her once a week for chemo or whatever.
7: What was that like for you, having to take her?
10: As long as she got better. (laughs) But she was so cute. The nurse, the doctor, I mean, she had a female doctor, and they did experimental drugs on her. And the doctor would tell her, but she'd tell my mother, no, Gracie, she said, you can't. After this treatment, you can't go out, you, you, I don't want you hugging people, I don't want you kissing people, you have to stay away, you know, could wear a mask. You can't catch anything, you can't, your resistance is so low or whatever. So my mother would listen and listen and then she'd get up and say, okay, thank you, doctor, and she'd hug her. I said, mom, she says, you're not supposed to hug anybody or kiss anybody. She kissed and hugged everybody, even when the doctor told her not to. And so I told her. I said, she said, "But well, that's the doctor." I said, "I know, but you're not supposed to hug or kiss anybody. <laughs> Don't you understand?" But she was, she was good. So the end. I mean, if the paperboy, somebody came to the door and they weren't dressed right, it was freezing outside. She'd open up the door, and take out a scarf, put a. She dressed people. She'd give you the shirt off her back or the coat off her back or whatever. Got some beautiful cards. and She died you know, people telling stories about, you know, what she did for them and everything.
7: Mothers have many opportunities to teach their children. And Rita's mother taught her kids the most important lessons and what truly mattered in life. Friends, family, food,
10: and faith. She just taught us life lessons, how to give and be a good Christian. She was like just... So appreciative of everything and she just she was a lady of faith great faith beautiful.
9: were there a lot of
7: people at her mm. service oh yeah
10: oh my gosh it was awesome it was beautiful i mean some of our neighbors the husbands i mean they would stand there and just bawl <laughs> they were standing there and falling at her at her wake i don't want to say she preached but she did without saying a word, but her example. I mean, if you just watched her example, she set an example for everybody.
7: Do you feel like your mother is someone you would aspire to be?
10: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And my children, my grandchildren. I mean, there's nobody like Grandma. <laughs> oh, if I could be half as good as her, I'm happy. <laughs> really. I'm not, you know, not just because she's my mother.
7: Rita closes with the beauty of her mother's passing and of course, dealing with her absence.
10: I was okay with her passing because it was beautiful. She had a beautiful passing. I felt like I was, I don't know if this was an out of body experience. I felt like I was looking down on myself and everything. You know, can you imagine that? I don't understand it. I remember we were, it was my sister and I, and my two cousins who were like my sisters, the four of us, just sitting there, standing. You know, she was, it was at the end and we were just sitting there and we were praying over her. And then we went back home and and celebrated. It was more of, we celebrated her life, you know? It really is a celebration when somebody's, had a, she had a beautiful passing. That's all we wanted, you know, That's all you could pray for. Then, but then you do, what you do is you'll say, oh gee, I gotta tell them out. You, you know, it's like in that, Reality doesn't set in. If you think you're going to tell mom or i think I'll call my mother. You know, it's like, uh, it's a little, you have to get used to it. There's an adjustment. But you never really forget them, so, you know, they're still with you.
7: One can only hope to be remembered and celebrated in such a wonderful way.
1: And thank you for that, Faith. And thank you for that, Rita. And we got a real picture of your mom, Grace. She'd give you the shirt off her back. She preached without saying a word. And we could get a vivid picture of that St. Joseph's table, even if we're not Catholics, feeding orphans in the neighborhood. And these are the beautiful things Americans do. Generous, beautiful, and loving. And again, thanks for that, Rita. And thanks for that time. When we come back, we'll hear from Steve Harvey. A beautiful moment, him talking about his mom. And we're going to close things out with Kevin Durant's speech, the star NBA player now for the Golden State Warriors, talking about the role his mom played in his life. It is a heck of a story. This is Our American Stories. Go to ouramericannetwork.org to hear all that we do. And we'll continue our Mother's Day celebration after these commercial messages.
0: dream of growing up to ride on a freight train leaving town not knowing where I'm bound and no one could change my mind but mama tried the one and only rebel child from a family meek and mild my mama seemed to know what lay in store spite all my Sunday learning towards the bad I kept on turning till mama couldn't hold me anymore. I turned 21 in prison, doing life without parole. No one could steer me right, but Mama tried. Mama tried. Mama tried to raise me better, but her pleading I denied. That leaves only me to blame, cause Mama tried.
1: This is Our American Stories, and you're listening to Merle Haggard. Born on April 6th, died on April 6th. Very few people are born and die on the same day Merle did. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and listen to the hour we did on Merle Haggard. It was spectacular. And it's all Merle. It's his music and it's his voice. And here's a clip of Merle that we took from that hour. And he's talking here about that mom he wrote about in one of his biggest songs, Mama Tried. I
2: can't imagine what she went through. Yeah. No, I was... I've got six children of my own. And I can't. I really—it's not just a f- phrase. I really can't imagine what she went through. It
11: must have been awful.
1: It must have been awful. And by the way, you could see Merle, and it was all these years later, holding back tears when he was asked about that song and what it what it meant to him. And he couldn't recall where that song came from. And you could see it brought back. Painful memories for him. And, of course, moms internalize this grief like no one else when kids go awry or they end up in prison or they die. I'm not saying dads don't either. But, boy, moms particularly internalize this kind of grief. Next up, Steve Harvey on his mom. Here's his tribute to his mother where he also has something to say about prayer as well. Take it away.
12: She went to church all the time. Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night. We skipped Thursday, Friday We miss Saturday and Sunday, both morning and night service. That's prayer meeting, Bible study, choir rehearsal, usher board meeting number one, two, three, four, and five. I I really was considering going to hell at one point (laughs) because I thought that it was just too much church. But her image, her concern with image was everything back then. You got to dress up to go to church. That was her thing. It's, it's, it's been instilled in me. I, I dress up all the time. I think about her when I'm tired.
1: Ty- He's choking up here. You.
12: you know, they are. Uh, asked me to do this i said i'll take a shot at it you know but uh it's a difficult thing for me okay i uh can only hope that in everything that she's taught me that uh, somehow she's somewhere watching me. I hope that I've made her uh, proud of the man I've turned out to be. Uh, Having always been why I should have been in my life, but uh, I was trying. And I look at my life and where it's turned out. I think about all of the moments of things she taught me about acts of kindness and how to treat people. And don't do nothing to a woman that you want nobody to do to your mama, or your sister. I remember her talking to me about respecting women. And if you can ever grow up Do something on behalf of women. Always honor them, son, because you'll need them until the day you leave here. I remember that. I remember her lessons about faith. She taught me to pray. She taught me about the weapon of prayer, how vital it is, how important it is. Whether you believe that or not, that don't really matter to me. It is work for me. Every single time I've used it. So as I sit here on a set that's mine and a TV show and everything else I got, it's because Ilois Vera Harvey taught me about the love of God and respect of people. I love my mom.
1: And now one of our stories from National Adoption Month. This is a letter from a 21-year-old named Sandra Sharp to the woman who gave her up, her birth mother.
9: I was in second grade when my parents told me I was adopted. There were so many questions that I wanted answered, but knew they never will be. There were times when I would look in the mirror, staring at myself, wondering what you might look like. The color of your hair, eyes, and skin, the sound of your laugh, the way you smile, wondered if you thought about me every day. When I was younger, I thought I was a mistake that that was the only reason you gave me up. I would be in tears thinking that there was something wrong with me. You placed me outside of a building and left me alone to have some people brought me to an orphanage. I would have hard feelings against you and didn't care about you. All I could think was, why? Why did you leave me? You abandoned me and I felt unwanted. But that was a mistake. It dawned on me that if you had kept me, my life would be completely different. I would be in China, speak in a different language, perhaps having a different religion. I wouldn't have the friends I have now. All my experiences with my friends and family wouldn't have even existed. I'm 21 now and I still have questions, but most importantly, I want to thank you. It must not have been easy to give up your own child, but what you have given me was a family that loves me, cares for me, and new opportunity. Even though we are thousands of miles apart, I feel that you are still a part of me, and a part of that still remains a mystery, but you still have a hold on me nonetheless. Who knows? Maybe I'll go back to the channel where it all began. Maybe we will eat at the same restaurant and make eye contact across the room, but we'll never know, but we'll never realize who we are looking at. Or maybe we will just know in our hearts and reunite. I have always fantasized about that part. I hope the weather is nice wherever you are, living life well, and maybe even raising some kids of your own. I wish you stay in good health and wish you all the luck in the world. And I just want to tell you thank you and I love you.
1: What a remarkable young lady. And last but not least, here's NBA star Kevin Durant, now with the Golden State Warriors. Upon becoming the league's MVP in 2014, in his speech accepting the award, he saved his final tribute to the end for his mom, and it's a powerful ending.
11: And and last, my mom. I don't think you know what you did. You had my brother when you were 18 years old. Three years later, I came out. We were stacked, the odds were stacked against us. Single parent with two boys, by the time we were 21 years old, everybody told us we weren't supposed to be here. We moved from apartment to apartment by ourselves. One of the best memories I had is when we moved into our, our first apartment. No, no bed, no furniture, and we just all sat in, in the living room and just hugged each other. Because that's what we, we thought we made it. And when, you, when something good happens to you, I don't know about you guys, but I tend to look back to what brought me here. And You wake me up in the middle of the night, in the summer times, making me run up a hill, making me do push-ups, screaming at me from the sideline of my games at eight or nine years old. We wasn't supposed to be here. You made us believe. You kept us off the street, put clothes on our backs, food on the table. When you didn't eat, you made sure we ate. You went to sleep hungry. You sacrifice for us. (laughs) You're the real MVP.
1: And there was not a dry eye in the house as they panned back to the mom and back to the boy. And a beautiful thing Kevin did paying tribute to a mom and being that vulnerable in front of all those macho athletes, particularly cut touching. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, our very special Mother's Day celebration. Happy Mother's Day to all the moms out there and fathers, boys, girls, take care of your mom and listen to your mama. This is Our American Stories, and we're celebrating Mother's Day for the hour. And today we're doing it with a guy who wrote a whole book about his mom. And that's a mama's boy, if ever I've heard one. And I'm one too. My mom passed four years ago in a month. His book is titled Promises I Made My Mother, and it's written by Sam Haskell, who's been named one of the most innovative and influential people in television, a top 25 he was the executive vice president and a worldwide head of television for the venerable William Morris Agency. His represented such stars as Dolly Parton, Kathy Lee Gifford, Ray Romano, Whoopi Goldberg, George Clooney, and oversaw the packaging and helped make happen a lot of your favorite shows, The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Everybody Loves Raymond, Lost, Murphy Brown, Live with Regis and Kathy Lee, The King of Queens, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire?, and many others. And Sam, before we dig into the book, what I want to do, and we'll be interspersing this through the show, is some pretty famous people talking about their mom and the influence their mom had on their lives. This is Kevin Durant a couple of years back. He had just won the MVP when he was playing at the Oklahoma City Thunder. And uh, this is what he had to say about his mom.
11: I don't think you know what you did. You had my brother when you were 18 years old Three years later, I came out. The odds were stacked against us. Single parent with two boys. By the time we were 21 years old, everybody told us we weren't supposed to be here. We moved from apartment to apartment by ourselves. One of the best memories I had is when we moved into our, our first apartment. No no bed, no furniture. And we just all sat in, in the living room and just hugged each other because we that's what we, we thought we made it. When, you, when something good happens to you, I don't know about you guys, but I tend to look back to what brought me here. You wake me up in the middle of the night in the summer times, making me run up a hill, making me do push-ups, screaming at me from the sideline of my games at eight or nine years old. We wasn't supposed to be here. You made us believe. You kept us off the street. Put clothes on our backs, food on the table. When you didn't eat, you made sure we ate. You went to sleep hungry. You sacrificed for us. <laughs> You're the real MVP.
1: The real MVP of Kevin Durant's life, his mom, your MVP. Clearly, Sam, tell us about who your mom is. Where was she born? Tell us a little bit about her life.
5: My mother was born July 17th, 1925, which is almost 91 years ago. She was the third of four children to my grandparents, uh, Hezekiah and Mary Kirkpatrick. She was uh, the first daughter, so she was doted on quite a bit. But being born in the pre-Depression era to a family that didn't have a lot put her in a position of responsibility at an early age. And then her little sister came along four years later, my my Aunt Betty. I've, I've lost them all now. I, I lost my mother 30 years ago this month to cancer. I uh, don't pass a single day that I don't think about her. But she was really outstanding, and I think my grandparents recognized that at an early age, that she was exceptionally bright. Her oldest brother, who was 12 years her senior, would walk her to school, and they put her to school when she was five years old because she was so smart. They didn't put her in kindergarten. They just put her right in first grade. And she graduated high school at the top of her class as valedictorian at the age of 16. My grandparents could not afford to send her to college, so she applied for a scholarship from the Air Force Cadet Nursing Corps, and they sent her on a full ride because of her her grades and her outstanding you know, not only extracurricular um, activities, but her outstanding academic career. And she went to the University of Tennessee and got her degree in nursing and was stationed at uh, Brooklyn Air Force Base Hospital in Mobile, Alabama. This was now in, we were in the mid-50s. My father was from Cincinnati, Ohio, and he had just been flown in from Korea with a broken leg, and he was put on her floor at the Air Force Base Hospital in Mobile, And uh, they met and married and had me and uh, then had my brothers after my mother insisted that they move back to her hometown of Amory, Mississippi. So my brothers were born in Mississippi and uh, I have that little Alabama in my background and uh, was raised in Amory and, you know, surrounded by her beautiful family. We would spend the summers going to see my father's family in the north. My mother married a Yankee. And uh, we would spend the summers on, you know, northern Lake Michigan and in the, in the cottages that my father's family had up there. I had an idyllic childhood. I had a mother who loved me more than anything in the world. And, you know, my parents were able to give us things that their parents had not been able to give them, but um, especially my mother. My grandparents all died when I was very young, so I really never knew knew my grandparents, but every April 3rd, which was my grandmother Kirkpatrick's birthday, my mother would take us to the cemetery and she would tell us stories about her grandmother. Storytelling has always been a very important part of my life. I am told that I'm a pretty good storyteller and I, I love sharing my stories, but my mother started it because she was the one who told us the stories in the beginning, the stories upon which we would base everything in our lives, and stories that taught us about love and faith and hope and character. She would give us examples of these principles at different crossroads in our lives and would make it very obvious to us if we were going down a road she didn't think we should be going, and it was always followed with a correction and a story.
1: Well, hold that thought, Sam, because we're going into a break right here. <laughs> okay. And one of the things we talk about endlessly in on this show is the power of stories. Yeah. The imitative power, the teaching power. Look, as old as the ages, stories were there from the Bible on, uh, Jesus Christ himself. Not a lot of lectures, a whole lot of stories. When we come back, more with Sam Haskell, his mom, a celebration of her life, her story, here on our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we continue our conversation with Sam Haskell, talking about his book, Promises I Made My Mother, Mary Kirkpatrick Haskell's life story, and Sam's in the end. And stories about moms and dads are in the end also, always, almost, stories about ourselves. And before we dig back in, as I promised, we're going to be playing clips from other folks and their reflections on their mom. This is James Lipton at the Actor's Studio with Al Pacino, uh, striking a theme that was recurrent, with a lot of the actors he interviewed over the years. Let's take a listen.
0: The past 11 years, it's occurred to me that we ought to have on our stage a wall of fame inscribed with the names of the mothers of our guests mm. who have stepped into the breach in the absence of a father mm. and husband. Does your mother belong on that wall, do you think?
12: Oh, my mom was a great uh, influence on my life, yes. Great. A real encourager in terms of acting, because she was a very avid reader and... and, and Uh, quite interested in the theater, quite interested in films, of course. Did she
10: work? She worked, Yep. Were you at home a lot, alone? I was home alone a lot, yeah. Did you live a lot in your imagination when you were a kid? Yes. And, of
12: course, you know, when my mother took me to the movies, and we didn't have television, and then I'd come home, and the next day would enact all the parts of the movie I saw.
1: You would? So it was a way of
12: both, you know, Dealing with the loneliness and the shyness, I also feel um, I, 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 i've always felt a kind of um, that i was I was borderline shy
1: and so many actors, as you know, Sam are borderline shy it 's a shock when people find that out that it 's only through this thing called acting that their personalities can be unearthed uh, let 's talk a little bit about your mom and your dad uh, because your dad wasn 't thrilled with the pursuit. Uh, that you were choosing which was of course the arts and your mom was the encourager your father was worried that that wasn't a man's man's choice uh, he wanted you to be a doctor talk about that internal conflict uh, between your mother and father and the role of encourager because Al Pacino said that word she was an encourager and it sounds like your mom was if anything an amazing encourager
5: Well, it's nice to know Pacino and I have that in common because my mother was an encourager, and she encouraged me and my brothers to pursue our dreams and to to set goals and to have a plan. There's not much in my life that hasn't been planned, and I think I probably got that from my mother, but my father was probably considered the black sheep of his family because he came from a family of doctors and he was not he was in the clothing business and was a salesman and did quite well for himself and but he was traveling a lot and gone a lot but I was supposed to make up for that and from the time I was five or six years old I was told I was going to be a doctor and my mother encouraged me to be a doctor obviously she had gotten her degree in the medical field too but to be a doctor only if it's what my heart told me I should do but At the time, I was a pleaser, and I was encouraged to please as well as encouraged to pursue my dreams, and as a pleaser, I wanted to please my father. My father was a very difficult personality. Um, My parents divorced when I was 16, and my father married the reason for the divorce and moved to Florida, and and I didn't see him much. My parents... um, During the early years, we're very close, and we had a very happy life. I I think it all started coming unraveled when I was about 10 years old, and the next six years were really tough going into the teen years. And my brothers and I were all just a year apart, so we all kind of went through it at the same time. But in the role of encourager, my mother encouraged me to pursue my dreams. And I was, in 1964, a television nerd. I would walk down the streets of Amory, Mississippi with my TV guide in my hand and tell people what was coming on television. And the number one television show in 1964 was Bonanza. And I would go to the Ponderosa with the Cartwright boys every Sunday night. I thought it was the coolest show on the air. And during that television show, one of its sponsors was Procter & Gamble. And Procter & Gamble had a commercial out advertising cheer detergent. And, of course, my mother used Cheer. It was a very popular brand back then. I think it probably still is today. Mm -hmm. But in the commercial, they had designed a suit, and a man wore this suit with the Cheer logo on it, and he had this funny hat. There's actually a picture of the Cheer man in my book. And he would go from town to town, and if he knocked on your door, as the commercial said, and you could prove that you used Cheer detergent either by showing a box top or... A reasonable facsimile which was basically putting writing the word cheer on a piece of paper right he would give you ten dollars well i was absolutely certain that the chairman was coming to amory mississippi but more importantly the 405 south third street in amory mississippi which was my childhood home so i wasn't content that my mother used cheer i i went down to the local poster shop and bought poster paper and paints and glitter and these designer rocks. And I made this giant cheer sign with the logo from the box and I put it up in my front yard. You know, when I tell this story, people laugh and I go, well, <laughs> they had to know where right. to go when right. they got to Amory. If I have the cheer sign in the front yard, they're going to show <laughs> up and, and give me the $10. Well, time passed and the sign got rained on and had to come inside. And it was the joke of all jokes among friends in the city, especially my father, who would get in from playing golf and go, hey, Sammy, where's your cheer sign? <laughs> I was Sammy in those days. My grandfather was Big Sam. My father was Little Sam, and I was Sammy, and I hated Sammy. And by the time I was in the ninth grade, I'd drop the M Y and become Sam. But that's another story for another day. But I will tell you this. My grandparents were Sam and Mary Haskell. My parents were Sam and Mary Haskell. My wife and I are Sam and Mary Haskell, and our children are Sam and Mary Haskell. So it's not hard to to miss our names at a family reunion. But anyway, my mother would look my father square in the eye and says, if this child believes a cheer man is coming, then he's coming, and we're not going to hear another word about it. Well, the sign got folded up in my bedroom and then under my bed and into the closet, and a year passed, and it was my middle brother Jamie's birthday on the Friday before Labor Day of 1965. And on any Haskell boy birthday, there was a yard full of boys playing ball and my father grilling burgers and my mother in the kitchen doing the cake and getting everything ready. It was just like the perfect birthday every year. And on this particular day in September of 1965, we're playing football in the front yard and suddenly I hear coming down the street, cheer, cheer, cheer is here, cheer, And I run to the curb, and I look down, and coming up 3rd Street is the little cheer car and the cheer man. And, oh, my God, it's the cheer man. I've got to get my sign. Of course, I'm running inside. My friends are running because they knew the commercial. They ripped the cheer box apart in my mother's laundry room, and people are writing it down on notebook paper, cheer, to have their reasonable facsimile. And just as I come out on my front porch and hold up my sign, the car pulls up. I mean, I didn't even think that he might be going to someone else's house. If he was on third street in Amory, Mississippi, he was coming to four Oh five. There was no question at all. And when I held my sign up, he looked at me and said, young man, you get the $10. My father is apoplectic. How is this possible? This kid has been waiting on this chairman for over a year. How is this possible? Now remember it's 1965 and the chairman says, well, you see, we've got this new thing called a computer. Now, in 1965, a computer was a refrigerator with blinking lights on it. That's how large it was. That's what it looked like. And into that computer, he said, we put the names of every registered voter in the United States, names and addresses. And 405 South 3rd Street in Amory, Mississippi, was one of the two that kicked out from Monroe County, Mississippi, and it's just taken us this long to get down here. I have to tell you, I learned at age 10 what faith and preparation and hope and belief could mean. And my mother just smiled.
1: Yep. And your dad, a little bit, you know, when you bet against people, you actually end up not only rooting against them, but when they get what they want, you're actually not happy. He wasn't. He wasn't. He couldn't believe it. Well, remember what Gore Vidal said? He said, every time a friend of mine succeeds, <laughs> a little part of me dies. I know. Uh, it tells you a lot a, about Gore.
5: And that's a terrible thing. It is. But it, it, is. Does, it does tell you a lot about Gore. But my mother had this peace about her with this. She didn't get overly excited. It was just like he knew, she knew. He knew, he, Sam, little Sam, knew the cheer man was coming. He believed. And I learned about blind faith that day. Not the kind of blind faith that we learned in Sunday school in terms of our faith, Christian faith. But I learned about preparation and planning and, and understanding. You know, we may not like what we hear or experience on a daily basis, but if we can understand it, we can get through anything. And the understanding I had about that moment was something that set me up for the rest of my life. And you know, this story, this cheer story, is, is one of the, the most important aspects of my selling this book. Because I told this story um, to all the publishers in New York that my agent, it's funny, a former agent saying my agent. But my agent put me in the room with nine publishers. And a week after those meetings, I had eight offers. And the book went into auction because people really want it
1: yeah, that's the power of a story and again we're telling sam haskell's mom story here on our american stories and my goodness the cheer story was worth the stop all alone sam but there's much more to come this is lee habib this is our american stories more after these messages Khabib, and this is Our American Stories. For the hour, Sam Haskell talking about his mom, Mary Kirkpatrick Haskell, and his book, Promises I Made My Mother. Go to Amazon.com and order Promises I Made My Mother. What I love about books like this, and what we try to do on this show is stay away from the daily drumbeat of politics and the news, and do hours that you can play a month from now, a year from now, five years from now. We try to tap as often as we can, redeeming and what we call evergreen material here. That is material that lasts a long time. Sam, we were just talking about this pitch that got you this book deal. Tremendous story. Uh, Let's talk about the divorce, because it's a remarkable story what your mom did after the divorce. She's not young, and she has to provide for a family, and she does something for, at the time, something pretty radical. Talk about that.
5: Well, my father um, was a very difficult personality, and he was not the kind of father after this divorce who allowed us to love them both. We had to choose. And, um, there was no choice for me. It was my, it was my mother. And she basically was on her own because he went in contempt of court and uh, refused to make the alimony payments and the, uh, the, the child support payments, which my mother had to take him to court to be able to take care of us in the style that we had grown accustomed. And suddenly it, you know, 17, I found myself the head of the family. And both my brothers, you know, would spend their summers with my father. And my mother really had this little school job as a school nurse. She was very popular in the town. She was, you know, in the junior league. And she was the headroom mother at school. And she had taken a job at the suggestion of the superintendent of schools, a man named uh, Mr. Heyman, Edwin Heyman who loved her and respected her and admired her and thought, I want to have a school nurse. She was one of the first school nurses in the state of Mississippi in a public school system. And it didn't pay very much, but she liked the fact that she had the same holidays we did, same summer off, only worked nine months, and could still basically be mom. And we were you know, young teenagers at the time in middle school and high school, and it it worked out great. But I was having to supplement um, making the house payments, and um, helping, you know, with everything. I mean, everything. I, I I grew up really quickly. And when I was a junior in high school, I was, I was pretty much the breadwinner. And my mother decided that she was going to go back to school and um, she was going to get another degree so that she could get a higher pay raise. And while I was finishing up at Ole Miss – my mother decided to apply for a scholarship to go to the University of Colorado and she went back to school in her early fifties and became Mississippi's first school nurse practitioner. Mississippi governor, Bill Elaine did an accommodation for her exceptional, you know, career achievements and, uh, I'm, I'm very proud of who my mother was. I remember having to fly to Denver. I'm, by this time, I'm in the beginnings of my career at the William Morris Agency in Beverly Hills, California, and I flew to Denver to help her study for her finals. Um, you know, She was always there running questions for me when I was a little boy, and so we did a reversal, and I was running questions for her. And she graduated at the top of her class. She was always at the top of her class, and she was also filled with class and grace and faith. And I I loved her dearly and think of her even to this day.
1: And that was time in the end for her, too. I mean, this was, you know, as so many moms will do, the time is for their kids, the time is for their husbands. But this was
5: a little real estate for herself,
1: I would suspect. Did she ever talk to you about that?
5: Well, after my brothers and I had finished college and were basically on our own, she needed to do something for herself, and she had always thought of this but had always put us first. My mother is the kind of mother that if there are six people and only five pieces of pie, she would say, Well, I don't really care for pie tonight. And everybody else would get the pie. Right. That's that's who my mother was. And she loved us more than anything. I mean, she loved us and one of the great, you know, sadnesses that I have is that she died before my children were born. She did know my wife Mary and loved her dearly and was so proud of the couple that we formed when we married in 1982 and my mother was so happy that day and that weekend of that those wedding festivities and that that ceremony. Um and but I've always been really really sorry that she didn't get to see my children and now my grandchildren. And I mentioned earlier about April the 3rd, my grandmother Kirkpatrick's birthday, and my mother would take us to the cemetery every April 3rd and tell us stories about our grandmother. Well, my mother died at Easter 30 years ago this year. And our son, Sam fourth was born at Easter the very next year. And he was born on April 3rd. And I knew in that moment, that my mother knew I had worried so during the pregnancy Oh, I just can't believe My mother's not going to be here to see this baby Oh, I can't believe it She would love this baby so much Well, he was born on April 3rd And I knew that she had something to do with it About a year later We're now pregnant with our daughter And we are traveling home To Mississippi, which we did a lot To see my Aunt Betty The day my mother died My, my Aunt Betty Kirkpatrick Rogers Became my mother so she was going to be the grandmother to our children and so we were flying back with little sam and mary was really big pregnant with our daughter mary lane and we were on a plane from la to dallas when we got off the plane sam was really really fussy and we went to another terminal to make our connection into memphis in those days we didn't have our direct flights on delta we had to fly american to dallas and then connect at dfw into to memphis and when we were in the holding area in Dallas he was so fussy and we just let him get out of his stroll and run around. There was a little lady sitting in an aqua blue suit now my mother's favorite color was aqua blue and the curtains in our home were aqua blue the clothes she wore were aqua blue. We buried her in aqua blue she loved aqua blue and he ran up to this little lady she looked to be about 85 years old and she was in a wheelchair and he started patting her on the knee and she just took his little face in her hand and said, aren't you a beautiful boy? And, you know, we were not really paying attention, but we realized that she was just a really sweet person who had reached out to our our child. When we got on the plane, as luck would have it, she was seated right next to us. And on the flight from Dallas to Memphis, she had an apple in her purse. And to this day, my son Sam's favorite fruit is an apple. My mother's favorite fruit was an apple. So she's cutting this apple and giving him pieces of it, and he did not whimper a moment. He was sitting in my wife's lap, who was in the middle seat, and she just kept talking about what a beautiful baby we had. At the uh, moment that the flight ended, she had to stay in her seat because, you know, they had to come see about her, so we had to wait. And while we were waiting, I was trying to get up to get all the diaper bags and all the stuff that you have to carry when you're on these planes. And she reached out and she said, you have a beautiful little boy. And I noticed that your wife is pregnant. That's going to be a beautiful baby too. Live every day to the fullest. You're going to have a wonderful life. And that's what my mother said to me the whole time and to my brothers, live every day to the fullest. Well, it just sort of shocked me. And as Mary and little Sam go off and as they take the lady off, I'm getting all the baby paraphernalia and the strollers and everything out of the above head compartments. And I rush out because I I have to tell Mary what just happened. I want to see this lady again. And she was gone. And Mary was there and I told her the story and we, we both sort of shed a tear. But I really feel like through my faith and belief that I had a visitation from my mother through that lady that day.
1: And I think people listening are going to think the same thing, Sam. When we come back, more on Sam Haskell's book, Promises I Made My Mother. This is our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we're listening to Bing Crosby singing the song When the Red Red Robin comes Bob-Bob bombing along. And Sam, that song has special meaning for you, we're going to talk to that, talk about that in a minute. By the way, folks, if you go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and our This Days in History, one of our favorites is the Bing Crosby and David Bowie collaboration on The Little Drummer Boy. And it's a heck of a story. And you'll hear from Bing's relatives and Bowie's relatives about how that song came to be an unlikely collaboration, to say the least. A glam rocker and an old pop crooner doing a favor in the end for their kids and their relatives, both of them. And uh, Sam,
5: let's talk about uh, that song. Why is it important? You know, as I'm sitting here listening, I thought... That's a God wink. Dolly Dolly Parton and I are very close and have had many collaborations together. And I represented her for years. We've been friends for over 30 years. And when I heard that come on with being saying that, my mother woke me and my brothers up every morning of our formative years to the Red Red Robin. And I thought, wow. And then I realized, you just are a good researcher. We try. (laughs) We try. (laughs) But there's a God wing too. There's a God <laughs> wink. I, I really appreciate it. But every morning of my life, I woke up to the red, red robin comes, bob, 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 and a law. And you
1: know, we need that stuff. And by the way, that's why we love doing our music segments here on our American Stories because it's a map of our lives. You know, we did one story, uh, Sam, about uh, a particular fellow who was taking songs to old people who had Alzheimer's, who had not remembered or known anything about their lives, but the second they heard a song, they were suddenly in a place. They were reciting the lyrics. And so we know, and I saw you just light up the second the song came on. So that's always fun to do for folks. Uh, Let's tell a a story about, well, it's a tough subject, but we touch it here on this show, uh, suicide, because in the end, your dad, uh, not long after your mom died, uh, killed himself. Uh,
5: Talk about that. Well, my parents had been divorced for about 12 years, and they were estranged. They had no relationship at all. My father, as I said earlier, made my brothers and me choose. And I chose my mother, my brothers chose my father. And both my brothers moved to Florida where my father lived with his new wife. And after they were out of college, they could go anywhere they wanted. And I stayed true to my mother. Well, my mother went through a very difficult time with her cancer. And um, we did everything in our power to save her. We took her to MD Anderson in Houston and had the best doctors available to do all these surgeries. And unfortunately she just, it was just impossible. And we lost her from start to finish in nine months. Well, the entire time that my mother was sick, my father was telling my brothers that she really wasn't sick. This was just Sam's ploy to get them to come see her because they hadn't seen her in a year. And she died with our family and Amory around her. Mary, my wife was holding her hand. I was holding the other hand and she had had zero blood pressure for about 48 hours. And I kept saying to the doctors, why, why is she still holding on? And he said, she's waiting on your brothers. She's waiting on your brothers. And they didn't come. And I had to tell her they were there. And that's when she finally let go. And, um, it was, it was very tough. And, um, it was devastating not only to our family, but to the entire community. The, the church was packed with over a 1,000 people at her funeral, and my wife Mary sang her, her favorite songs, and the preacher preached her favorite verses, and it was incredible. My brothers did come to the funeral, but my obviously my father did not. That was on April 20th of 1987, and on January 20th of 1988, just two months before little Sam was born, my father took his life and it was nine months to the day that my mother had died. And i had had very little relationship with him because again, as I said, he made us choose and I chose my mother. And, um, I was very close to my father's sister, my aunt Marilyn and her husband, Bill, my uncle Bill. And so I stayed in touch with them and our cousins obviously, but my father had no relationship with his sister, no relationship with me or any of his close friends he had become completely isolated, and I believe that morning of January 20th, 1988, he woke up and looked in the mirror and said, my God, what have I done? And he took his life. And when I was writing the book, one of the things that I've always said to myself, i even as a kid, right after the divorce, I would look in the mirror and say, I am not going to be the typical product of a broken home. I am not. I'm going to be... Everything I dreamed of being, I'm going to be outstanding, I'm going to be smart, I'm going to win, I'm going to win this life, I'm not going to let this tear me down. And so I focused on everything positive that I could. So in the first draft of the book, I just wrote about positive things. And my editor gets the draft and says, so I guess you think you're perfect. And I went, no, why would you think that? Well, I see no mistakes. I see no faults. I see no failures. I see no father. And I went, oh, my God. So I rewrote the entire book based on the principles that my mother had taught me and lessons that she had given me at times of moments that maybe I wasn't making the right choice or moments that I needed to be redirected or I needed some comeuppance in terms of parenting. And those lessons were were such profound messages to me as a kid growing up. And then I used those same principles in my business in California, you know, in the entertainment business. But I didn't mention anything in the original draft about my father's suicide because there was such a terrible stigma attached to it, and I was embarrassed, and I I just didn't think I would mention it at all. Well, they told me I had to, and they wanted to know the truth, and the only way people are going to respond to you is if you tell them the whole truth. I had not even told my children. I mean, Mary knew, but my children did not know. None of my friends in California knew. They all thought he had a heart attack because that's what I told them. So I put it in the book. And I want you to know that in addition to the life lessons that my mother taught me and the stories that I told about Hollywood and growing up in small-town Mississippi, small-town America, I got over a thousand letters from people thanking me for talking about the suicide. I was able to witness to people completely unknowingly, completely reluctantly, and found that it was something very powerful because people thought, if he can go through something like that, I can go through something
1: like that. I think that's true. You know, one of my favorite lines uh, when... When Tennessee Williams was buried, and he had written about a lot of painful things, uh, Arthur Miller said he made us feel less alone. And I think in the end, uh, when you bear witness to such things, with heart, not exploitatively, um, but just confessionally, um, you're always bringing people closer together uh, who felt the same thing. I want to talk about pennies, um, because when you, look, you've you've done all right for yourself. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So you're you're not picking them up because you need them. But you pick up pennies when you see them. Why? And can we see the vault? Because I understand
5: you have a lot of them. I do. I've got jugs and jugs of lucky pennies, and I find them almost every day. I say in the book that there's only been one that I didn't pick up, and that was one I saw in a urinal in a men's room. And I almost did, but I just couldn't bring myself to it. But... From the time I was about four or five years old, we would walk around the streets of Amory, Mississippi, and my mother would see a penny and go, find a penny, pick it up, and all the day you'll have good luck. And we did that until she died. And then I suddenly started finding even more of them after she died. And I believe, you know, we all have our own methods of thinking about things, but I believe every time I find a penny now, it's my mother sending me a message And I find these pennies, Lee, and this is what's so amazing. I find them when I'm worried about something. And the penny tells me it's going to be okay. And almost always it is.
1: That is something. And by the way, one of my favorite books, I I write a lot. And when I'm stuck, I pick up Flannery O'Connor's Habit of Being. Because for her money, your habits can also determine outcomes. And I don't think as a culture, we tell enough stories to each other, our families, our country. My goodness. My goodness. My little girl doesn't know anything about World War II yet, and she's now about to go into the seventh grade. How do you not know your own country and not know the Revolutionary War? Um, and these aren't political discussions. These are just things that you need to know about your own country, your own family, and then the habit of telling those stories together and telling them over and over again. You're lucky that your mom you know, instilled this in you, Sam. And, and so the last point here, and we got about a minute and a half to close out, You had this dream, a kid from small town Mississippi, to go out and make something of yourself in this place called Hollywood, and you did it at a level at which few people have ever done in history, and it is an unlikely story. What
5: percentage of this do you attribute to your mom? Well, I give her a great deal of the credit. I also give my wife, Mary, a great deal of the credit, but from my mother's point of view... She believed in me more than anyone until Mary came into my life. And then they had to share. And then obviously after my mother died, Mary was my complete support. But my mother thought I was so special. And she would tell me every day of my life that I was special. Don't forget you're special. Don't forget. I don't care what anybody says to you. You're special. And when she would correct me, she would say, it's my job to prepare you for your destiny. I know that you've got a great destiny. And it was my mother who instilled in me the faith when everyone else said, "Oh my God, what does he think going to Hollywood? He needs to get a job. He needs. He's just finished Ole Miss. He needs to get a job. What's he doing? Get serious. Yeah, this following the yellow brick road to Hollywood. Oh my God. But my mother said, I believe he can do it. I believe he has the heart, the soul, the faith, the endurance, the perseverance." That he can do anything he wants, and I will hold on to that until the day I meet her again. And folks,
1: we can all encourage or we can discourage. There is no middle ground. So choose the side our words matter for friends, for lovers, mothers, fathers. If you're listening, you've just heard Sam say it. We hear it over and over again. Heck, we just heard it from Jerry Kramer in our Vince Lombardi Hour. And he was talking about Lombardi and the encourager Lombardi was 30, 40 years after the man had done that encouraging. Sam, thanks for joining us. This is Lee Habib. Sam Haskell's book, Promises I Made My Mother, celebrating the life of Mary Kirkpatrick Haskell, still with us after all these years. Thank you.